Hi, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jake, and I'm uh, the assistant pastor here, an assistant pastor here at Clear Note Church. I'm the college pastor. Um, the way this is going to work is I'm going to ask a few questions specific to each of you, and then give you time, uh, or give time for the rest of you to comment. Um, and then I think the plan is to open up to the floor at the end, is that right? Okay, so the first questions will be for David Bailey. David, you said, quote, most preaching doesn't rise to the level of prophecy. It's just teaching. Doesn't that statement denigrate the gift of teaching? What's the function of teaching in the church and specifically in preaching? Well, um, Calvin had a view of the, the offices of the church. That there were four. Uh, one was the obvious ones, elder and deacon, then pastor, and then doctor, as they called it. The doctor was to teach the whole church and was to teach theology, all right? Sometimes a doctor could be a pastor, but typically the doctor was not a pastor. Sometimes a pastor would also be a doctor. Calvin was one of those who was both. But he insisted that the care of churches be done by those with pastoral gifts, the gifts of prophecy, of dealing with people. So, yes, it does denigrate teaching to a degree in the same way that, that I think we have to today where the, the model of everyone going to seminary is that they want to be a seminary professor rather than a pastor. Mm-hmm. In other words, what we've seen is an inversion that we've put as number two what scripture puts as third. And we have to beat that back. Does that make sense? Yeah, so you would see the gift of teaching being uh, something akin to a seminary professor. Yeah, or it could be beyond that, but it's certainly not the shepherding work. And and to put that in the the pulpit and the leadership of a church is is to put, you know, the the kind of ministry that was defined by that quote that you gave. (laughs) Which makes people feel good about themselves because it's intellectual. And you do have to have the intellectual. You know, you've got to have people who can think that way and who can define the Nicene Creed and all that. But it's interesting that in in the Reformation, you almost had no straight doctors. Now, I don't know who in the Reformation was actually maybe uh Turton? I'm saying that out of ignorance. Did Turton pastor? I don't, yeah. know. I don't know. But beyond that, you know, almost everyone was. Did he? Does anyone know? Do you know whether or not he did? Does anybody else want to comment on that question? Okay, David, do you have to be a charismatic to truly yeah, believe I do. in preaching? Okay, go ahead. <laughs> we studied the text that David's talking about in the pastor's college this week, and we were discussing where are the doctors today, and they are the seminary professors. They also are the acquisitions editors of publishing companies. Mm-hmm. Paul Engel up at Baker was a member of our presbytery. They also are the senior pastors of most self-consciously reformed churches. Mm-hmm. And so I think that probably... But I think when you sit under their preaching, 
who was it? Were you the one that talked about our friend who said it's really tough when every book is written in the pulpit, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think often the senior pastors of tall steeple churches are actually doctors, not pastors, and you see it in their preaching. Are there, um, outside of our fellowship here, uh, are there men that you recognize as uh, pastors who aren't doctors? Does that question make sense? Who aren't or who are? Who are not, who are pastors first. I think lots of Baptists are. <laughs> you know, I don't know. You know, they're not, they're not into the intellect, and so they're just pastoring. They're just, they're just shepherding people. They're just shepherding. I mean, it, Mr. there's a lot of people yeah, like that, but they're never prominent. Name? Right. You never know, at your wedding. Yeah, Wayne Goldsmith, the pastor who who brought me into Toledo years ago. Simple guy. Didn't care what denomination he was. He always preached Jesus. Went to Hillsdale and little church, dying church, and had it at 400 people within five years. One of the ways he did it was that he was 60-some years old. And within two years, he had visited every home in Hillsdale. He He just visited, and he visited everyone in his church, and he... And it's okay for us to be that. Oh, let me be that. Yeah. <laughs> Stephen, you, I thought you were saying something. I was just saying you wouldn't, we wouldn't know those men because they're not writing books. Hmm. So they're, they're, they're out there. They're just not visible. So Some have, of them are visible, but most of them wouldn't be. So have misplaced doctors set a false standard for what a pastor should be? In American yes. evangelicalism? I guess that was a leading question, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, David, here's a question that we got. Do you have to be a charismatic to truly believe in preaching? Oh, no. <laughs> but if you're going to truly believe in preaching, I think you have, to, you have to be somewhat open to charismatics. Why is that? Yeah, Yeah. Um, you have to be somewhat open to it because I think otherwise your hermeneutic has overwhelmed scripture. Your theology is is stronger than the word of God. And I don't know a way to divide these passages. And and just experientially, I have found that the people who are, in my experience, at Christ the Word, in our experience there, right? Guys, who are the people who come in and, and immediately love the, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God? And who are the people who are offended by everything that we do and teach? Anyone want to say? Andrew, who did we find? Scott? <laughs> yeah. And the, and the charismatics come in and just, they believe in the power of God. Mm-hmm. They don't believe in the power of the mind. They come in and believe in the power of God. Now, occasionally, you'll have them praying in tongues in a prayer meeting. You go, <clears throat> no, you know, there are certain things said about this. <laughs> I'm always uh, a little leery about talking about these things with David Carell sitting down for me. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if David Carell still would say that God wouldn't speak to us through dreams. He wouldn't say that. Would you say that? No? I think he 
Okay. But remember a few years ago, that coming out of the charismatic movement, you said that you didn't, God would only speak through the word and wouldn't speak through dreams. You remember? Yes. No, I don't. I can certainly believe that I did say that. Yeah. So I'm always, I'm a little frightened to have David come after me. So. It's, if I could say, it's interesting that even if you forget about charismatics, and just think as reformed people that we never talk about the Holy Spirit. And so if you would just adopt everything about the Holy Spirit in the scripture that you're comfortable with. Absolutely, yeah. It would be a wonderful addition to your church. Absolutely, yes. To have him there. <laughs> Beginning with regeneration. Yes. Any other comments on that? Well, you can say that the sadness of Lloyd-Jones and what happened to Westminster after he left, I don't know if any of you love Lloyd-Jones the way certainly I do. I think probably all of us do. And the, the charismatic influence, I think a lot of reform men would see, see, we told you so. But boy, you get his little book on authority. I don't know if you've ever seen a little booklet called Authority, and you read his chapter on the Holy Spirit. He's got the Reformed Church's number. And, and I have talked with Ian Murray about Lloyd-Jones on this, and I think Ian Murray is the official keeper of the flame, and he does not like the charismatic movement. Mm -hmm. He does, and there's probably a valid reason for it. Our father hated the charismatic movement. I think if there's one thing he didn't like, it was the charismatic movement. Baptists. Tell <laughs> uh, the truth. But, um, but Ian Murray, I, I think he protested too much about Lloyd-Jones. Every time I read Lloyd-Jones on the work of the Spirit, yeah, I say, Ian yeah. Murray's wrong. He is trying to, he's trying to retroactively clean up the guy at the point where he thinks he's weakest. Well, and look what happened at the church. Yeah. And so Tony Sargent wrote a different kind of book. Which was excellent. I don't know how many of you have read The Sacred Anointing. It's, it's, it is. If you want to know about Lloyd-Jones preaching, read The Sacred Anointing. Don't read Ian Murray. I mean, Ian Murray's great on his whole life, but if you want to read a book that will challenge you about his preaching, and the work of the Holy Spirit. Read the sacred anointing. Okay, one more question for you, David. David, do you really believe today that the true sacraments ought to be further denigrated? Not that they shouldn't be subordinate to the word, but that evangelicals should have a generally lower view of baptism in the Lord's table than they do. <laughs> well, yeah. No, no. <laughs> Did I say that? <laughs> Apparently, you gave somebody that impression. I thought I'd let Calvin say that. <laughs> um, yes, I, I think that anytime you come to a magical view of the sacraments, you've, you have actually, you actually need to ratchet it down and you elevate them by giving them the right place rather than by, by creating something of them that's really not there. So the Roman Catholic view of baptism is a denigration of baptism. It's not an elevation. 
you know, because it's not true. And so assigning the sacraments their right place glorifies them. It's the same as with women and men, you know. Are we denigrating women by saying you must submit? Well, in one sense, yes, but you're assigning them the right place, and therefore it's a glorious place. But if you elevate it, if you elevate them into the pulpit, you have denigrated them, right? Mm-hmm. Can I say to that, another side of it would be that uh, what, what we're not saying or what we're not elevating to its proper place would, were it elevated, would help for people to understand the sacraments without thinking of the sacraments being depreciated. It's what you're saying, but, but the issue of elevating what ought to be elevated, mm-hmm. those things that are more important. And so we can talk all day about women uh, becoming submissive. Let's, let's see men become leaders. Let's see men take responsibility. And I think it would help us tremendously in, on the women's side. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I, I'm actually, let me just say that the very conservative groups within the PCA say we're normal means grace people. Word and sacrament, word and sacrament, word and sacrament. Well, fine. But let's have them in their proper order. Word, 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 sacrament. Actually, Calvin preached, and I think in, in Geneva there were 26 sermons a week. There were four communions a year. Calvin was willing to give up communion. You know, he wanted it monthly, but he'd go to quarterly. Weekly. He wanted it weekly. What's that? He wanted it weekly. Well, I think as I was reading that book, I know that I've heard that, but I think he actually was fighting for monthly and yes. got from the council of quarterly. Geneva quarterly. Right. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. he fought for monthly, but he but gave he, up on quarterly, but he, he insisted on daily sermons. Mm-hmm. So let's have that, that kind of that kind of a witness or that kind of an emphasis. If I may uh, address this for a second. Um, when I came to Bloomington, there was a man in my congregation who was a uh, Plymouth brother. And he was adamantly opposed to, um, I would almost say, to preaching. It sounds impious. And he would always argue with me, and, and he was Plymouth Brethren going back several generations. He'd argue with me that um, the Lord's Supper is true worship, and preaching is not. And so, in that church, I would say he was the epicenter of evangelicalism, epicenter of dispensational, informed evangelicalism, bordering. Uh, and so today, when we listen to Federal Vision Men, we, we get the idea that all evangelicalism is opposed to sacraments. But we need to think more sophisticated about it. Evangelicalism, much of it has been opposed to sacraments. But there, has been, there have been strong strains in mainstream evangelicalism that have denigrated the preaching of, of God's word. 
In fact, when I went in the ministry, I remember saying to my dad that I didn't have much hope for my preaching, but that I thought small groups would be very important for ministry. And so my dad wrote an article <coughs> against me. And he was absolutely right. He was absolutely right. I began to preach, and I began to watch what the Holy Spirit did through preaching. It boggled my mind. You know? Now, another thing. Um, the question is worded in such a way that it's bogus. David never said that evangelicals need to lower the sacraments. He was speaking to us. <laughs> okay? We are not evangelicals. As a matter of fact, in that, he was speaking to men that have sympathies for Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, and who tend to the federal vision direction. If you don't know what that is, that's fine, but that's who he was addressing. No, certainly not in the main. Evangelicals don't need to have a lower view of the sacraments. <laughs> they need to, to get some concept of the sacraments. They have absolutely no concept at all of the sacraments. And so... <laughs> In, in the question, it was said, you really think evangelicals? No, 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 he doesn't think evangelicals, right? Well, it's like he, it's, he doesn't like what I'm saying. But. I don't know. I don't even know what to say because, you know, I, I, I don't College think I church. said that, but I'm, I'm willing to own it, you know, in a sense. I didn't say it, but I'll... I'm trying to think. Well, I think I'll own that. I, you know, yeah, so, um, can, can it, I? But but what does the what does the Westminster Confession say about the sacraments? In the absence of the word, yeah, 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 they're nothing, right? I mean, even our Westminster Confession says it. Or, Tell them about our conversation with the guy down in Texas. So well, I don't remember this conversation. The, the nursery. Yeah, I've I've lost my. He had to instruct the mothers not to bring their children up from the nursery. That's right. Well, it's very important that you understand that it's against reform polity to ever have the Lord's Supper without the preaching of the Word. You just don't do it. You don't do it. And so a prominent leader of the Federal Vision, David and I were talking to him. You tell him the story. You were the one that had the conniptions. Yeah, I, I had several conniptions that day. And I, <laughs> sort of lost sight of well, what happened was this man was lifting sacraments back up into a prominent position in his church, which evangelicals need to hear this. And then what he found was that the mothers who had been in the nursery for the entire service, as soon as the Lord's Supper was served, they ran up with the kids and took communion. They ran and got their kids, didn't they? And brought them in. Okay, maybe you know? that. Yeah. And I'm just going, whoa. You know? <laughs> we don't do that. And, and what we have to understand is you read any good church historian, anyone on the Reformation, they all say it was a preaching revival. That's what they all say. And the preaching of the word was completely humiliated, just like what David was saying. And so you have to fight today for, <laughs> I don't know how to put it, the right to preach, the responsibility to preach, the duty to preach the imperative to preach. You have to fight for preaching today, man. You have to fight in the way you preach, in, in your arguments about the centrality of preaching. This is very important. Now, I want to say one other thing about this issue of the sacraments. Get Bannerman, the Church of Christ. Get Bannerman. Two-volume work. It's up on the internet if you don't want to buy the books. Read him on the sacraments. It's, it's superb. James Bannerman, 1800s, uh, Scotch 
uh, guy. Read them on the sacraments, and it just becomes very clear. That's the first thing. The second thing is men, another place we're not being faithful is in the way we uh, lead the Lord's Supper. There has to be fencing of the table. It has to happen. And if your view of sacraments is such that you think the, the, the I'm just about this Sunday to start on 1 Corinthians 11. <laughs> I have received the Lord. That's where we are in, in going through 1 Corinthians right now. You simply cannot be faithful in the sacraments if you believe in the restoration of the sacraments without also restoring what every single reformed shepherd has ever done at the table, which is defense the table. I recently had an experience of having a visit from a, a federal vision uh, woman, radically federal vision, and she stopped here on her way someplace, ah. and, <laughs> and she was upset at something that had happened on the blog about fencing the Lord's table, and so while we were sitting there at the table, I took out my computer, and I read exactly what Calvin used as his liturgy in fencing the Lord's table in Geneva, and I said, well, what do you think about that? And she said, that's awful. That, that, is, that is a guilt trip that is absolutely awful, <laughs> you know? And I said, but it's Calvin. She said, I don't care. And so we have to ask if those who supposedly are restoring the sacraments to the position of honor are the ones who are opposing the fencing of the table. There's something weird there. I can't quite plummet. I can't figure it out. But we have to fence the table. Because there are, Luther said it this way, he said, you have to preach the law, he says, as well as the gospel, you have to preach repentance as well as faith. He said, if you don't preach repentance as well as the faith, you don't preach the law, then our people will become without compunction of conscience, quote unquote, and quote, this will be an error worse than all those hitherto prevailing, unquote. That is the condition in many of our churches today. Our people have no compunction of conscience. If they come to the Lord's table without compunction of conscience, they're not discerning the body and blood of the Lord, and that's why some got sick and others died. So if you're going to restore the sacraments, don't restore them without really hitting your head against the fencing of the table that Calvin did in Geneva, that Knox did in the English congregation, that has been universal practice across the Reformed world. And you don't have to pay for that one. Okay, Stephen, these next questions are for you. Could you define what you mean by application? If it is neither implications nor if you're 30 and married with three kids while driving in a car down 3rd Street in Bloomington, if it's neither one of those two things, then what is application? It's bringing the truth of Scripture to the actual people sitting in front of you. So you don't have to make up, you know, what MacArthur called little scenarios or little illustrations. Mm -hmm. All you have to do is look at the people who are mm -hmm. sitting in front of you. And while you're preparing your sermon, you, you should be thinking mm -hmm. about the people that you know are going to be there. How, what does this person need to hear from this text this Sunday? You don't have to make anything up. <laughs> it's not about little illustrations. It's about... I know who's there, and if I know that that person's there, there's probably 10 more of them, right, where that particular thing said to that particular person is actually going to be helpful generally because it's, because no temptation's taken you but what's common to man. 
can you can you give an example of how that might actually play out? <laughs> well, I'm just trying to, well, um, how would that work out? So knowing the congregation, knowing that there's, um, I mean, pick, I'm just trying to think of the scenario that I can pick that's not going to be difficult. Well, one example, actually, that Tim brought up earlier when he was talking about um, uh, not preaching from a manuscript. He was talking about making eye contact yeah. with people and having the thought, oh, she's going to be timid about coming to the Lord's table. Yeah. Yeah, that's one example. I, I tend to preach from a manuscript. I've, I'm trying to get away from it, but I tend to do it. What I try to do is thinking through people in the congregation mm -hmm. while I'm preparing. And I try to write a sermon in such a way that is different from if I were writing an, an essay or an article or a chapter. I'm trying to write imagining myself standing in the pulpit and speaking to the people. I'm trying to actually get away from that. <laughs> and I have a little bit, but not today. Neither <laughs> did um, so that's what I. That's how I. That's what works for me. I, I think through the people in, that I know that the Holy Spirit brings people to my mind while I'm preparing, and I think, what does that person need to hear? That doesn't mean that I'm not going to say something to someone that I see out there that I wasn't thinking of. That that's common too. <laughs> but it's all about reading, knowing the congregation, and knowing what what it is they need to hear. I'm very interested to know what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> well, you should tell them what you just said because it, it'll sort of... What I, what I said is that I find myself quite often thinking about the people and the situation and then going to the passage and saying, okay, what can I find to address this uh -huh. situation? I mean, you say that's eisegesis, but I don't think it is. I think, you know, you see the, the apostles do that frequently. You know, they take something and you say, how do you get that? And then you realize he's thinking the situation. And, uh, and that's driving him to this passage rather than the other way around. So. I was just thinking about something that in order for this to happen, you have to know the people in your congregation. Yeah. And you have to care about what's going on with them. Yeah. And that's not easy. I think for some people it's... It's interesting, when I first moved here, I always thought it was funny that Tim never came out before the sermon and walked through the lobby and talked to anybody, and he just kind of hid, okay? And I thought at first that that, that was weak, but I realized over time that that was actually a manifestation of something very good and pastoral in Tim, and the reality is that when Tim walks out into the lobby on Sunday morning, uh, he sees a face, and it's like a medical file opens. And a doctor has a medical file, and he has all your history in it. And when you go to see him, the nurse pulls it out, and she gives it to him. And he looks at all of your stats and your, your shots and all those things. Well, Tim has a file like that on the people in his congregation. And so when he walks into the lobby, they just start popping open. He can't help it. He thinks about them. And they pop open. 
And he, it's so distracting, I think, that he just doesn't want to talk to anybody before he preaches because while he's preaching, he's, if he's already loaded up all the files, he won't know what to do when he looks into their faces because that's what will happen again as he's preaching. And it's because he's familiar with them. When we're familiar with our people and their sins and their needs and we're preaching to them, we'll have in a glimpse of their face all of their stuff and we'll have the concern and it meets with our preparation and it meets with the Holy Spirit and then we are able to help them and address them. You have to understand, some of you have that gift and some of you don't. I have a dear friend that's pastor of First CRC out in Wyndham, uh, Washington. And I tell him all the time, we've been best friends since seminar, I tell him all the time, Robert, I would give anything to be you. Because I tell him, I say, Robert, you can walk into a room of 600 of your parishioners and you are completely oblivious to anything going on in any of them. And he is a faithful pastor, but he just, that's not his gift. Doug Wilson it's always describes himself as having a wonderful clutch. Have you ever heard him say that? He has a wonderful clutch. I don't have any clutch. Everything is, is speed shift for me. There is no clutch. And, and, well, and maybe grind, maybe pull a gear into neutral, whatever. Um, I want to, who was it? Was it you or Stephen that was talking about, uh, it was Stephen, he was talking about, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, John MacArthur. When I was in the mainline denomination, a godly older woman in the PCUSA gave me a set of his tapes on the pastoral epistles. And so in Partyville, I just listened to all those tapes. And they were unbelievably encouraging, helpful, strengthening. <laughs> oh, man. It was, it was so helpful to me. But John MacArthur has a failure, and it is that he never applies scripture. But I wanted to tell you that if you want to know what application and illustration and, and stuff are, one sermon on Titus, he gets to women adorning themselves. And he's just doing his typical sterile thing. Not sterile, because it's God's word, but you know. And all of a sudden, he stopped on that sermon, and he said, now listen here. He was like, God, wait, Charles Stanley. Like, now listen. I want you young men to listen. I want you to look around you. There are many young, beautiful, wonderful, single women sitting around you in this church this morning who have adorned themselves. And you men need to notice them and marry them. <laughs> I'll never forget it. It was like John MacArthur applied scripture to his congregation. And I think that's the only time I ever heard him do it in all those tapes. And what it was, you know, what it got under his saddle, that's that Sunday, I have no idea, but he did do it. <laughs> we're all, I think we're always, preachers are afraid of preaching in such a way that people will know that we're talking about them or that other people will know that we're talking about so-and-so or addressing so-and-so. And that's a fear we have to get over because it's contrary to Scripture, contrary <laughs> to the example of Scripture. Scripture, you know... John didn't worry when he wrote the book of Revelation that this other church was going to know that he was talking about that other church. You know, I mean, 
Philippians, all that stuff. So that, that would be my answer. We need to think particularly about the people in the church and just what would I say to them if I was standing to them face to face and then say that in the pulpit? I'm, I'm not some expert on that. There's a book on the table called Truth Applied by Jay Adams. Jay Adams has some things that I don't agree with on certain doctrinal things. But that's a really good book. Have any of you read that? Truth Applied. You should get it and read it if you're a preacher. Do you have something you wanted to say? Okay. <laughs> Stephen, um, can you speak to how the Holy Spirit uh, works in the preparation of a sermon? You said... The Spirit doesn't reprove, rebuke, exhort for you, but through you. Um, can, you t- can you speak about how the Holy Spirit works both in preparation and in the preaching of the Word to convict people of sin? I haven't the slightest idea. Hmm. Okay. I mean, uh, <laughs> he does. It's shocking. Yeah, there you go. Well, it was a badly phrased question. Um, maybe a Shame better. Yeah, I know. <laughs> maybe a better way to ask the question is: You said the, the Holy Spirit does not reprove, rebuke, exhort for you, but no, it's not what I said. I didn't say but through you. I said but you must do it. But you must do it. Okay. You must do it. In other words, the command is to you. The command is to me as a preacher. Preach the word. You reprove. You rebuke. You exhort. The idea of preaching that says all I do is lay the truth out there and I don't have to do any of that. It just kind of happens automatically. It just kind of jumps off the page as people are listening. It's almost like they hear the word and, and reprove, rebuke, and exhort themselves. That's crazy because it's a command to me as a pastor, as a preacher to do that. So that's what I mean. You know, God... The Holy Spirit commands us to obey. We can't do it ourselves by our own power. And yet, he doesn't, do it, he doesn't do it for us. He commands me to kill my sin. He doesn't say, just let go and let God, and he'll take care of that. So the same thing applies to preaching. You, um, I have to rebuke. I have to reprove. I have to exhort. I have to teach. And if I don't do it, it won't get done because he told me to do it. So it's, it's in the context of, you know, just lay out the truth, just explain what it means, just make sure everyone understands what it says, and then it'll all be okay. Then, then it'll happen. See you guys. Yeah, thanks for coming. Bye. Give our love to Becca. Does that make sense? I'm surprised that none of us read what Calvin said. I thought one of us had it in, the, in, in our description about the angels. Did anybody read that? Did you actually, you did skip it. Did you, did you say that to them? Yeah, yeah. There's a theme in Calvin that I think we should rehearse with our people all the time. 
we should say to them, look, I know it's a pain in the rear to have me preaching to you. I know my sins and my personality trait grates on you. But God could have sent you an angel. But he chose to send you a man. And what Calvin says is not just a man, but you're inferior. Often, you're inferior. And then he says, now why did God do this? And he says the reason is because it, it, it humbles you to have to feed out of the hand of a man that you're inferior. And I think it's important for us to remind our people of that all the time. And I think that, you know, that what Stephen is saying, it's so humbling to a preacher to have to rebuke people, right? Isn't the reason we don't want to do it is because the minute we rebuke somebody, the rebuke, you know, that old, you know? Yeah. And it really is true. I mean, why do elders not want to discipline somebody? They're all sitting there with guilty consciences. And so we have to be very careful to be faithful to the work God's called us, knowing that it's embarrassing for us and for them. And if we try to avoid that embarrassment, then we avoid the tool of humiliation that God, or humbling, you know, that God wants. Of course, part of the problem is that, that we even have to discuss this, because if we, if we viewed ministry in the pastorate as being fatherhood on a different level, mm-hmm. you know, which is what it is, then how on earth could we ever think that the pastor would not rebuke, correct, do these things himself, and that he'd leave it to the word? You know, I, I think any father who says, I'm just going to read the Bible to my kids and not apply it would be a fool he'd say I'm a fool you know no one does that as a father and no one would have a mind but why would we say that what a father must do a pastor must not do okay Max this is from a man preparing for ministry how do I prepare myself as an aspiring preacher to preach as a dying man to dying men how do I prepare myself to go all out. I think some things are provided for you. Um, What I said about sovereign foundations, that's provided for you the reality of the task that you face whenever you go to preach is the reality of the task. It's not, I I wasn't kidding when I said every time I walk up during the doxology and sit down, I'm having thoughts. And so what are the options of the thoughts that you would be having at that time? Well, I got this one in in the bag. Is Is that what you're thinking? If that's what you're thinking, then something is greatly wrong. Uh, But what you ought to be thinking is, if God doesn't do something here, it's worthless. If God doesn't use me, this is all vain. And when you start thinking about the seriousness of what's at stake, then you start to realize that you're, you, you start begging, pleading with God. And you say, please, 
please, would you please let me say something that would be eternally consequential or good? Am I answering the question the way they're asking it or no? Well, I think the question has to do uh, with preparation, with the process of preparing. So maybe it's better directed at Stephen um, than you. I think that's helpful. Um, But I think what we have here is a young man who's just a young man in our pastor's college or somewhere else who's saying, how do I... I feel like a doofus. How do I go from doofus to a man who's prepared to preach? Everything we do is about persuasion. You're going to write a sermon. What is a sermon? It's a persuasive speech, but it's more than that. And so that's basic to preparing a sermon is you have something you're convinced of and the need for it you're convinced of and the need for it in the people that you're hearing that you're convinced of and you're going to them with a uh, with a prepared statement that is going to do everything possible to win them over to what they need to be convinced of or what they need to turn to and again I don't know if I'm answering it well I would say knowledge of yourself and knowledge of your people. You, you can't, so you said, you know, the quote, as a dying man to dying men, do you feel yourself to be a dying man? And do you see all the implications of that in your own sin and, and weakness and, and foolishness? And Do you know what you deserve? So heaping up the, all that stuff on your head as a way of life, not just, you know, before you preach. So that when you're preparing to preach and when you're standing in front of people, you know there are souls at stake. I'm a weak man. <coughs> I'm a sinner. And yet, here's the message. I need to hear this. You need to hear it. God has given it to me. So there's all these things that we remind ourselves of constantly that have to do with self-knowledge. And, and the, the reason the Puritans, for example, are so helpful to us is because they knew they knew themselves. That's why you can read John Owen and say, how did he know that about me? You know? And the answer is because he knew it about himself. So instead of cultivating ignorance about your own sin and the sins of others, cultivate awareness of those things. Go ahead. Well, David, David says his best things. Um, David was up here pointing out to me that three of the four men up here have lost churches. Actually, the truth is that between us, we've lost one, two, three, four, five churches because David Carell did it twice. Wouldn't you sort of say that's true? Yeah, yeah I'm special. Yeah, you're special. <laughs> and I don't think that David or I would be anything like what we are if we had not gone through the utter 
humiliation. I don't know what to say. It was somewhat different for us. But God will, God will allow you to die. And those will be the most precious things. It took me either eight or nine years to stop bitching about that church. We refer to it here as the church formerly known as Prince. <laughs> Circumlocution. And, uh, and boy, do you learn how to control your temper, how to control your tongue. You learn how much God accomplishes by your church failing and you taking it with love when they fail. And so, but I want to say one other thing. I, I, this is a little bit dicey, but could I see the hand of the person that wrote this? Uh, so they're gone. Now, now, why did I ask for that? Well, I sat here listening to the question, and I began to nail who it wasn't. Now, how did I do that? Is it important who asked that question? How do you learn to preach as a dying man to dying men? I know it's not Michael Foster, who's in our pastor's college, who wrote that. Why? Why? Why do I know it's not Michael Foster? Well, and because Michael Foster just lost Nicaea. We put, him, put, put her in the grave. And then I also know it's not, I forgot the brother's name. <laughs> I, I'm never going to remember your name. Yeah, yep. Aaron, Eric. I also know it's not Eric. How do I know it's not Eric? Because Eric and his wife have been losing children to miscarriage. I think I saw him tear up last night just, just simply talking about it. And I could go through the men of, that are here and talk about the suffering in your life. And what you have to see is that suffering is precious. It's precious. All of us know that when Michael Foster lost a child, Michael Foster became a pastor. We've all seen it happen in front of our faces. And so it seems obvious, but the question was, how do we preach or learn to preach as dying men to dying, as a dying man to dying men? And the answer is, check out death. It's, it's a real good purifier. And, go ahead. And, and, and one other comment. I also knew it wasn't you. Now, how did I know it wasn't you? Ben, Ben, why did I know it wasn't you? Be because this last year you went through losing Glenn. Yeah. So look for death. Where death is, show up. Show up with your wife. Show up with your children. Watch it closely. It's better to be in the house of mourning. Okay? Wherever death hits you, and that will really help you. Okay. Um, we had several questions related There's to... There's Andrew Dion. I was, I was just going to say, submit to the word preached yourself. And then you'll preach for submission. You know, do, die, to, 
die when somebody else preaches to you and actually do what they say and then you'll pre- and then you'll know how to preach to get people to submit what actually helps me most is meditating on the coming judgment of God the fact that it hangs over all of us um, is a sobering thought that puts fire in your preaching um, there were several questions related to uh, the relationship between humility and authority how do I carry myself with humility how do I learn humility as a preacher um, and I'm wondering David one said something like, how can I be a man with feet of clay while entrusted with the oracles of God? Can you speak, David, to the relationship between authority and humility in the pastorate? You must know that's you, David. Max, sorry. <laughs> well, Tim harps on sexuality all the time. I harp on authority and knowing your place and so I always point people to Jesus talking to the centurion and the centurion saying no 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 don't come to my house I'm a man under authority I know all I have to say to a guy is go do this and he does it and I have people over me I have people under me I know my place and Jesus, he said, just say the word. And Jesus said, your, your servant's healed. And then Jesus turned to the people following and he said, I've never seen such a good understanding of authority in all of Israel. But that's not what he said. He said, I've never understood such faith in all Israel. And so, give me the question again. <laughs> Well, it's just about, about the relationship, the relationship between humility and authority. That is humility. Knowing your place is humility. <laughs> to, stand at, to stand at the table behind the master and say, I am an unworthy slave. I've just done what I ought to have done. That's humility. It's also faith. So, so the centurion knows that he has someone over him and that he has someone under him. And the person, the, the commander over him has given him the command to have people under him. And if he decides, you know what, I'm humble, so I'm not going to have people under me, he gets his head cut off. And he's very proud, and he deserves it. Because he didn't exercise the authority that was given to him as a charge. And so to preach with authority is not to be proud, it's to be humble because God told you to preach with authority. I mean, you can, you can do that as a proud man, but then you're, not, then you're not representing. Calvin goes on and on about this, the ambassador. You know, the ambassador comes not in his own name, but in the name of the one who sends him. He uses the name of the one who sends him. He uses the authority of the one who sends him. And he doesn't turn away from doing what the prince has told him to do. And, and that's the humble position to take. And he's careful to, to, to guard his dignity. To guard his dignity. 
Yeah. yeah. As the ambassador, because he knows that if he allows people to be disrespectful to him, that they're disrespecting the king. Which is why, you know, Paul says to Timothy, let no one disregard you. It would be a, it'd be a proud thing for a young pastor to let people disregard him. Because that would be a, a, a disobedience of the command of Scripture. Okay, Tim, a related question for you. How do you bear the dignity of your office while still being approachable, open to receive correction and rebuke from your elders and congregation? Painfully. Yeah. The approachability, although there are probably a number of people in the congregation that wouldn't know this. And that's fine because they have pastors that they relate to. It doesn't have to be processed through me. So the approachability, I, I don't know how to say it. That's not very difficult. What's difficult? I mean, I don't know. Can I say that? Um, I think the original question actually uh, said, how do you keep your people from being afraid of you as well? <laughs> well, I had a line in the, in, the, in the manuscript that said, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is a monster. The real quote is, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed, one-eyed man is king. But we live in such a pathetically effeminate age, androgynous, so, so lacking in leadership, lacking in authority, lacking in everything, that a man that started to recognize the problem will be a monster. And so it's a good question, and I have no idea how to answer it. Were you afraid of dad? did you know he loved you I think one way to deal with it is to know that we have responsibility for our people to that we're answerable for them and when we love them and we give to them what we're supposed to give to them there will be a, a measure of fear that will exist I mean, I think the centurion did have fear for his superiors, don't you? And it's, it's completely appropriate. Our children should fear us as fathers, even though they're completely safe in our love. There should be, uh, just like we should fear God, even though he has demonstrated his love in a way that none of us ever would consider. Yeah, I don't know if this question is coming from somebody in our church who feels that I'm a bad you-know-what. But I'm going to assume this comes from somebody that isn't in our church. It wasn't specifically addressed to you, but I thought it went with uh, something that you had said. Okay. (laughs) I didn't write it, I promise. But I thought it would be good for you to answer. 
because nothing, I didn't get Listen, it. listen. Number one, we all have a ton of people in our church, both boys and girls and older men and older women, who have been sexually molested by their fathers, their brothers, their neighbors, their uncles, their grandfathers. Wake up, men. It is everywhere today. Everywhere. Now, if you have that in your church, you're going to have what I had back at the church formerly known as Prince, a young woman who's a graduate student who is obviously the product of sexual abuse. You should get so you recognize it in an instant. All right? And especially women who have been sexually abused, a man like me is like a, a cross in a vampire's face. And the reason is I'm big. I'm fat, I'm opinionated, I'm East Coast, not Midwest, I'm direct. And so she's going to be petrified of me. We had a woman up in Wisconsin who had been molested by her brother. You know, all these homes are perfect evangelical homes. This was the most respected evangelical home in the community, probably. And She'd come over to our house to hang with Mary Lee back when we were in Wisconsin. Every time I'd come in the kitchen, you would watch her. And if I came in from that door and she was standing here talking to Mary Lee and I came through the door, she would like a scared fawn. She'd start backing up, even if it was 10 feet away. And she'd turn so she was oblique to me. Do you, do you understand? I watched this go on for probably 10 years. We moved down here. She'd come and visit. If I got anywhere near her, there were places in our house where I uh, kind of had to get near her to go by into the kitchen. And she would, like, get terror-stricken and try to back up. And this is after years of us loving her, having her as a guest in our home, you know. Finally, one visit, when she was getting ready to leave, she looked at me and she said, Tim, before I leave, could I have a hug? All right, some general questions for everybody. What encouragements and warnings would you give to young men who aspire to preach? How can they set a trajectory of faithfulness early in their ministries? Chesterton has this thing where he says uh, whenever some uh, non-believer asks a question uh, that has, that's so broad, you just sit there and stare at him and all you can do is like, start pointing to the chair and to the... <laughs> well, that's so stupid my chauffeur can answer. <laughs> I don't think we can overestimate the value of giving up money and not and living in at the edge that's a, a very very good thing for for young men and that's why the PCA is dying I think you know they, they get out and they think they've got to make 70,000 a year they start where most others end you know and, and so, so that's so don't be in debt not being in debt for your training if you can avoid it, yeah. If you can avoid it, I mean, yeah. but we, you know, if you can avoid it, absolutely. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I found: these guys are going to be the great pastors of 
of the next 30 years. Why? I'm including you. Because they did what our dad did when he said that Princeton is gone, having been accepted there. You've told them this story? Tell them. Dad was accepted at the end of his Wheaton career in the 1930s at Princeton. It was where a PC USA young man went. And then he started thinking about it. And they'd been through the Independent Board of Presbyterian Missions, Foreign Missions, controversy at Wheaton College. It led to the firing of a president. And, and Dad started to have his eyes open to the death that was in the PC USA. And finally, he said, I'm not going there. And he went to a little seminary known as, that was called Faith, and it sort of has gone belly up in the years since, but he went to a little seminary called Faith where there were about 15 guys in his class, 10 guys, something like that. And in the years he was there, a number of guys you'd never have heard of, but perhaps some of you older, wasn't it Art Glasser, Ken Concer, Dad, Francis Schaefer, they were all there. And all of them said, we're going to go somewhere where the word is upheld. Mm-hmm. and where there's no reputation, but we're going to go somewhere where the word is upheld. And that kind, of, that kind of risky faith gave them no future. I mean, it was kissing goodbye. And that's where the evangelical movement came out of it. It was all these guys who had no home church. And at that point, they hadn't, you know, they didn't know where to go. And so they gave their lives to the parachurch. And then, dad, and then dad became the first university staff worker for New England, and he got paid nothing. Then he became the eastern regional staff worker for InterVarsity and the editor of his. He spent one week a month in Chicago away from his family, and he was the eastern regional director, and he was also director of InterVarsity Press. And while he was doing that, he would make once a week hoagies for our Christian school with my mother late at night. I think it was Wednesday night because we couldn't survive. We lived in a duplex in the city. We couldn't survive. And so money, David is absolutely right about that. When he left InterVarsity in 1960... He went to Chicago in 64. So left InterVarsity in 60. And how many years had he been with InterVarsity at Probably that time? about 18 years. Had not a penny of pension? Nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And when Mud died, Dad did not start working to save money until he was 45. When? Working to earn money. Wait, what did you just say? When the Dad did not get a job that paid anything until he was 45, and even then it was modest. I kept dad's books for a year because he thought I was a spendthrift. And so when I was in high school or junior high, I can't remember when, he said, I want you to write my checks for me for a year. And so I balanced his checkbook. I, did, I wrote all his checks. I paid the bills. And I realized that he, was making, he wasn't making a huge salary. He was giving 20% of his salary away. And, and out of that, he, you know, he lived 20 more years. So he got a job at 45. How many of you are over 45 today? A few. He hadn't earned a penny. And when he died at 66, he left my mother so that she was comfortable for, what, 30 years? You know, 28 years, never had an ounce of need. Now that's God. Trust God. He will take care. 
And it was unbelievable. And the same story of Dad Taylor. Exactly the same story. That you just live like a dog for years, for decades. Mr. Taylor just had 10 children. He always used to just fear, how in the world am I going to give a college education to my kids? So he planted Christmas trees in his backyard. And he never learned that you have to prune Christmas trees. And so they... You know, it, it, the, it, all the kids planted the trees, and they were worthless. So then a missionary talked him into investing in a coffee plantation, and it took, I want to say, three years to get to the point where you could expect anything from it, and the third year it burned to the ground. So the next thing, and, and mind you, is it Moody at this time had no money, and, and if you listen to Mrs. Taylor talk about it, and I think she's going to come here and speak soon. You listen to her talk about it. She will cry about how she would stand in front of a window with a jar of marmalade in the window, and she would just cry because she could not afford to buy marmalade. And she had grown up wealthy. And then he decided he was going to choose the road more traveled, and he took what tiny little bit of savings he had, and he put it into the stock market. And he said he spent the whole year looking at the newspaper and following his stocks. And at the end of the year, his, his, his broker called him and said, Mr. Taylor, he said, out of all my clients, I, I'm sorry to tell you, you're the only one who made no money this year. A few years after this, Ken Hansen, who started Service Master, came to the class that Dad and Dad Taylor and Dad Bailey were all Dad Bailey taught it with Ken Hansen. He said, hey, our company's going to do an IPO. You can take over from here. Because David... I don't know about Mr. Taylor. I remember Mudd always excoriating Dad for not having bought into service masters. <laughs> I knew it was going to go somewhere, Joe. I knew it was going to go somewhere. <laughs> and so he told everybody in the Sunday school class, buy, buy stock. You will not regret it. And a bunch of people in that class bought stock in Service Master. Well, a few years later, David lived. Tell him who you lived with. Oh, yes, Peter Vermilia, who was the vice chairman of Citicorp at the time, under Walter Riston back then, if you remember the real founder and leader of Citicorp, the one who built it. And uh, when I told him, I was his servant. And I, kept, I kept his estate. And... Uh, on, I'd drive him to the airport. He'd go down and live on Fifth Avenue and run City Corps during the week and then come back to his estate in Boston. And uh, one day on the way to the airport, I told him that I was friends with Ken Hansen. And suddenly, I was a man of substance in his eyes, you know what I mean? <laughs> because for years, Service Master had maintained one of the highest growth rates on the New York Stock Exchange. It's just mind-boggling. Mr. Taylor, when Ken Hansen said to him, and they, they went to Europe together with their children, when Ken Hansen said, we're going to do an IPO, Mr. Taylor had learned his lesson about stocks. <laughs> he didn't buy any. And then what happened? Well, what happened is God established the strength of Tyndale House financially so that he ended up being able to pay half of the college costs of all of his grandchildren, 28 Taylor is the final grandchild, and, and, and Taylor's decided he's not going to college. Well, there you have it. <laughs> but that's another thing. And so when David says, submit to the financial humiliation of your life and of the seminary you've chosen to go to, David and I have 
so beautifully seen how God blessed our father, my father-in-law, my, our father. And, and, and they didn't love money. Anybody else encouragements or warnings? Okay, starting with Stephen down the line, how do you sermon prep? How do you prepare to preach a sermon? I, since I'm not the main preacher here, I preach, normally I, I wouldn't preach a consecutive series through a book. I have just started preaching a series of my own on the benedictions of scripture, as you all know. Um, so the first the first step is what am I going to what text am I going to preach from? And I just chew on it and think about it for a week, starting on Monday or so, and um, write things down, read some things, look at the text, um, pray about it sit down and, and think about the people in the congregation and write it, like I said before, as if I were speaking rather than writing as if I was writing a written document. And that's, that's how I do it. So I sit down in a, probably a couple of sessions in a couple of days towards the end of a week. I always like to be done with my sermon on Friday. <laughs> Baileys don't do that. David? Usually I think Tim and I are happy if we're done by Sunday morning. <laughs> and I mean, there's, there's no rhyme or reason. It's just I think the key thing is for all of us, it's thinking, thinking, thinking all through the week. You've got to get in the habit of just thinking about the passage wherever you're driving or whenever you're sitting there. You know, the shower is very helpful. Shower is the, the best place. And, and I've often on Sunday morning had Cheryl come into the bathroom and said, here, Cheryl, I've got, I'm changing my sermon. Write this down. And I, I say it to her from the shower, and then I have my sermon, and I throw out everything I wrote the day before. It, re, it really does work that way. It's the increased blood in the brain. Yeah. The steam. It's highly esteemed. Tim? Um, for the first 25 years, probably, uh, my habit was to think about it during the week and then to spend all Saturday until the wee hours of the morning Sunday preparing. Um, probably for the first 15 years, I always, always, always read my sermons to my wife when I got done writing them. And that often meant that she was up at 1 and 2 in the morning. I'd wake her up, and I'd have her listen to the sermon. Sometimes she'd send me back to the office to start over again. It's true. <laughs> Use your wife. She's a wonderful helpmate. Um, lately, I don't do that anymore. Um, Kent Hughes said something to me, I think, that was helpful years ago. He said that, and, and I don't recommend Kent's way of preparing sermons in some regards, but I think this is just wonderful. He said 
that he would, he would get up at like 4 o'clock Sunday morning. Well, if you know me, I'm a night owl. <laughs> and so typically I will get up somewhere around until about five to seven years ago. I get up within an hour of when I'm going to be in the pulpit. And um, he said, when you get up in the morning, he said he'd get up at 4.30, and then he would read the most devotional commentators on his text. And so he would save the commentator that was most spiritual, most helpful, all right? And so I got in the habit at that time of always making sure that I would not read Martin Lloyd-Jones. If I was preaching through the Sermon on the Mount, I would not read him until I was done my preparation. Because what I found was if I read Martin Lloyd-Jones, I just felt like killing myself. <laughs> because there was nothing in it that I didn't want to say. And so you'd sit there writing down everything Martin Lloyd-Jones said. And then it's just it's so depressing to see men always doing everything infinitely better than you could ever dream of doing it, right? Spurgeon should be shot. <laughs> you know? I always tell people, reading a Spurgeon sermon is like... Kill me now, <laughs> you know. So what I got in the habit of doing was right when I went to bed, the final thing I would always do is I would read Martin Lloyd-Jones on the text so that I couldn't write it down, I couldn't get obsessive about it. I just fed on it. And I find that what you read when you go to bed, you ruminate on all night. And it's what's in your mind when you get up in the morning. So be very jealous of what you are feeding on when you go to sleep Saturday night. Now, one final thing. I told you my habits have changed. Now, what I do is I get up very early Sunday morning, usually somewhere around 5.30. And I get over here between 5.45 and 6.30, depending. And it's so much better than preparing the night before. Because everything's fresh in your mind when you go in the pulpit. But again, don't read the good people until you're done preparing. Do you hear me? And then take the good people into the pulpit. So typically I will take into the pulpit Calvin's commentary and I'll have scribbled on it. Um, Lloyd-Jones, if you're ever in the Gospels, should we say it in unison? Ryle. <laughs> oh, J.C. Ryle on the Gospels, pure gold. May I say one further thing? That they say that I've read that Spurgeon did his Sunday morning sermon on Saturday night in half an hour and his Sunday evening sermon in half an hour on Sunday afternoon. And I do wonder if often we spend too long mm -hmm. on, on our sermon. Yeah, I mean, that goes back to the whole the Reformed lecture model of preaching. Uh, reformed preachers spend, you know, 8, 10, 12, 16, 18 hours a week in their study, poring over the books, over the minutia, dissecting, writing a masterpiece. It's just awful. Uh, so, which means they have nothing really helpful to say in the pulpit because they haven't been, you know, in contact with the people at all. That's why I'm always hesitant to answer the question, how do you, how do, you do sermon prep? I think it's a very personal thing that, you know, 
when you if you read how does so and so do sermon prep and you think oh well that's how to do it you know then eh. whatever so, works for you that gets a good that gets good preaching is what you should do Max you want to well the only thing I would add like Stephen I preach infrequently here but um, like Tim I have to do this the night before and in the morning of because it's easier for me to it's all fresh and right in my face at that time I don't know how to describe that but what Stephen just said about how, how it's hard to explain it's like preaching everybody's different you're not Spurgeon you're not Lloyd-Jones you're you and I'm me, and we have to figure out how we preach our, ourselves in a way that's not a artificial or forced or, or uh, trying to be somebody else. Uh, God loves diversity. <laughs> Very good. Uh, thank you, men. I'm told we have to wrap up. Um, so let's pray, and then Bill will direct us. Father, thank you so much for being with us uh, over the course of this conference. Thank you for teaching us, for feeding us from your word. And thank you, Father, for uh, spurring us on. I pray that you would give us repentance from our laziness. And I pray that you would make us all faithful men. In Jesus' name, amen.